Um, today's reading comes from Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owned him or owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to and all that he had be sold to repay his debt. At the at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay off the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had had on you? In his in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ethan. Yeah. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be worshiping with you all. Uh, as I was uh, preparing for the sermon, reading that passage, I was trying to think of a, an example of when it's hard to forgive in, in everyday life that's going on kind of right now. And the example that came to mind was the Houston Astros. Are you guys familiar with what's going on with the Houston Astros? They have just kind of been caught or found out about a sign-stealing um, scandal that they've been involved in. Apparently, if you don't know baseball, so like the pitcher throws the ball to the catcher, but the catcher is like crouched down and he's making signs to the pitcher because the catcher needs to know what's coming because when it's coming at 100 miles an hour, if it's moving this way or that way, you need to know so you can be ready for it. Well, the Astros had set up, I don't know exactly the details, but what I, my basic understanding is they had set somebody up kind of far out, maybe with a camera, so they could like see what the signs were, and they had this elaborate system where they were getting the signs back to the batter, so the batter would know what pitch was coming in advance. And obviously, that's really helpful. If you know a fastball's coming, you can kind of tee off on it, or if you know a breaking ball is coming, you know, you hold back. Um, and, you know, if the Astros had been, you know, using this scheme and then they had ended up um, not winning any games, nobody would have cared. But they went out and won the World Series. And so it worked. It was helpful for them. And um, the Dodgers were the team that lost to the Astros in the World Series. And you might not be surprised to know that they're a little upset about this sign-stealing uh, scandal. And so they've been interviewing some of the Dodgers players and people in the management, and they're frustrated 
And they have been voicing like, hey, they cheated and they got away with it. They won the World Series on us. And they've been naming that. And they've been complaining. And as I thought about this story, I think this is, I mean, this is kind of a big example of someone wronging you and then you losing out on something. But it kind of reinforces like, yep, that's like the way the world works. And we have this, or I at least notice inside of me that there's this sort of like self-protectiveness that if somebody's going to be like wronging me or cheating me out of something, I want to make sure that they don't do that on repeat so I can like maybe um, make sure that if they wrong me, I speak out and say something in a harsh enough way that they go, oh, I don't, I don't want to wrong John again. And so it's sort of like hearing this story reinforces in me like a disposition of not being forgiving, like of being tough, of being punishing. So people know, if you wrong me, I'm coming back at you. And you, therefore, you shouldn't wrong me in the future. And I think this is kind of the lesson that as you grow up at some level, you kind of got to like figure out, like you got to learn this at some level. Like if I'm really nice, people are going to take advantage of me. And so I need to like make sure that people know that if they wrong me, if they step on my toes, I'm going to punch back or I'm going to strike back at some level. But what is interesting about our scripture for today is that Jesus essentially says that this is our disposition for life. If we kind of go through life in this way where we're in a very self-protective way refusing to be forgiving towards other people, then we are going to miss out on the experience of the kingdom of heaven. Today, we're beginning a new sermon series for Lent, and it's on the parables of Jesus. And I think the reason why Jesus speaks in parables is because we have this um, incredible overconfidence about our own spiritual maturity and where we are kind of in our spiritual journey. And so, if you've been in church long enough and I said to you, you should make sure that you forgive other people, there may be a tendency in you to be like, yeah, I'm I, I do that. Like, I get that. Like, I've heard that message before. I'm going to be forgiving towards people. I know that I'm supposed to forgive people. Um, I do forgive people. I think I'm okay. I'm a pretty nice person. I'm okay. But what Jesus does in a parable is he tells a story in such a way that kind of our assumption of where we think we are gets undermined and turned on its head. Parables teach us by using a story that gets behind our defenses. Kierkegaard said that Jesus told parables in order to deceive his hearers into truth. So there's something that happens when you read a parable. You read a parable like this and you think about the guy, why? Is he, it's so ridiculous. But the point of the parable is for us to see that we do that. And to be deceived into the ridiculousness of our behavior. That we can't, he can't just say, well, you don't really forgive people enough. You're like, hey, hey, yes, I do. But then you hear a story like this and you get deceived into, I am unforgiving. I am petty. I am vindictive. I am bitter. I am resentful. That's what this parable brings out. The direct truth is in the first few verses. Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? 
And Jesus, I tell you, not seven, but 77 times. So he says it directly, but then he's like, they don't get it. They don't get it. So how am I going to tell this story? Like, what, what do you do? How do you tell a story in order to convince a person? No, 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 no. You are not forgiving enough. What do you do? Direct language isn't enough. So he uses this parable to show us this mysterious reality of the kingdom about how if we're entering and receiving experience in the kingdom of God, we become more forgiving people. And I don't think, based on the way he tells this parable, I don't think Jesus is thinking about like the major wrongs that have happened to you in your life. Like Some of us have deep, deep hurts. Wounds that go very deep. In my sense of who Jesus is, Jesus is very gentle. And so if you have like a deep, deep wound that maybe takes years and years and years to extend forgiveness to the person who gave you this wound, I'm not sure that this is what Jesus has in mind. Like I think Jesus is very gentle with us as we go through this maybe multi-year, multi-decade process of forgiving a person. So that's okay. What this parable seems to be getting at is the way that you and I, recipients of amazing, abundant love, grace, forgiveness, can be so petty in the smallest of things. He has in mind the way that we can be in this intimate relationship with God and then spend our daily life kind of harboring this disposition of resentment or bitterness or passive-aggressive behavior or giving people the silent treatment to get our way or or having contempt in our heart or or gossiping against somebody because they wronged us. Our daily interactions of withholding love, affection, kindness, and gentleness for the smallest of reasons. The point of the parable is not that major wrong that is so hard to... It's about, we're not even good at forgiving it. The smallest of things, the most basic of things in our everyday life, if someone just bumps into us, we feel like we need to puff out our chest and be unforgiving. So reveal, that's the point of this prayer, to reveal how shockingly unforgiving in these small, little areas we are. Protagonist, in order to make this point, he draws this contrast. Protagonist is forgiven an extraordinary amount. Here's what one scholar says. A talent, that's in the Greek, the original, and some translations have talent. This has bags of gold. A talent is a measurement of weight or gold, silver, copper. It varied, but has between approximately 60 and 90 pounds. 10,000 talents would be 204 metric tons. A talent was equivalent of about 6,000 denarii, which would make the first servant's debt 60 million denarii, and at one denarius a day, as in Matthew 20, verse 2, would require a day laborer 164,000 years to repay. The annual salary of Herod the Great was reportedly 900 talents. Okay, so this gives you a sense of the scope. Now, Josephus, a Jewish scholar at that time, talks about a tells a story of a tax farmer who offered to collect 16,000 talents for a region. So, you know, this sort of person maybe could exist in the scope of his job was to, to correct, um, collect tax for a king and then came up well short, somehow got none of it. Um, but the idea is basically about this 
high-ranking, powerful servant of a king, possibly a tax farmer, who for some reason um, has promised some huge amount of money and is completely unable to repay what he owes, this debt. But then this king, out of magnanimous mercy, forgives the debt and lets the man go free. But then he goes out and it's like, it, the kind of the picture is he has, he's forgiven this huge debt, he goes out and then he's like walking down the street and runs into somebody who owes him the smallest of debt. Again, the contrast is really important. The debt he was forgiven would have taken 164,000 years as like an hourly worker to repay. The debt that he refuses to forgive is the equivalent of one day's work. Okay, so you've got to feel the contrast here. And this, I think, is the primary point of this parable. The huge debt forgiven and the extremely small debt that he is then unwilling to forgive. So he doesn't say a huge debt and then another huge debt. It's a huge debt and then a small debt. So I think he has in mind the small, petty ways that we withhold love and kindness from one another. And I think he's making, trying to show everything exactly the same. So he even has, when the first servant is begging for mercy and the second servant, he uses the exact same language. Verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will repay everything. And then verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. So the point it's the exact same thing, but it's different responses. Even though there's, on one hand, this huge debt forgiven, and on the other way, unable to forgive the smallest of debts. I don't think that this is about, as I mentioned, about our really big debts, the things where you're deeply wounded, that maybe take years of processing. I think it's wise to go slow as we work. I mean, we want to forgive, but we can go really slow as we kind of learn how to release those wounds to the Lord. I think the point that Jesus is making is the petty and significant debts we hold on to, like the anger that we hold on to towards our spouse, maybe because he didn't do the dishes like he promised to. Or the bitterness we feel towards a coworker who forgets to invite us to a meeting. And how, how long do we hold on to that? The rage and vindictiveness, maybe that starts to well up in you if you get cut off in traffic. Resentment towards a family member for needing your help. We've already showed them how to do it. Gossip and judgmentalism, maybe towards a friend who maybe hurt your feelings a little bit by not texting you back. These are the things that Jesus has in mind, that we can, on the one hand, receive this tremendous amount of grace, and then on the other hand, go right into our everyday lives and be so unloving and so petty and unforgiving. And the point that Jesus is trying to deceive us into is if you cannot live a gentle, forgiving life towards others, then you are not receiving God's forgiveness for yourself. Last verse of the scripture reading. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless... You forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is not a kind of random theme. This is something that comes up for Jesus all the time. In the Lord's Prayer, right in the middle 
of the Lord's Prayer, the essence of our prayer life. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Luke 6, 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. This is something Jesus talked about a lot. And when he makes this statement, I don't think he's being formulaic. I don't think grace is conditional. Like God is withholding these things, waiting for us to like hit the check boxes and then give to us. Rather, I think he's trying to point out to us how intimately connected our capacity to forgive other people is linked to the depth of our awareness of what God is doing in our lives. What God has done for us and what God is continuing to do, the grace that continues to come to us. This servant wasn't or was forgiven, and, and for some reason, as he receives this forgiveness of 164,000 years worth of labor, it didn't cause joy. It didn't cause the sense of, like, I'm okay, that then impacted the way that he went on to his life. It, it, it didn't cause this deep gratitude that resulted in generosity. And when we hear this parable, we're meant to ask these questions why not? Or in my life, why doesn't it impact me more? Why doesn't God's grace impact me more? Set me free more fully from resentment, from bitterness. And that need to be vindictive or retributive towards someone who wrongs me, even in little ways, if they just put me down just a little bit, I want to get back at them. Why doesn't? God's grace set me free from that more. And if we think it's formulaic, like if we think, well, if I just was better at forgiving people, then God, I, then we would think the solution is just to like will ourselves to be for, more forgiving. But that's not the point of the parable. I think the point of the parable is how oblivious the servant was to the depth of grace that he had experienced. So I think the key point Jesus is trying to make to us is if you find yourself, if I find myself full of resentment, bitterness, or being petty, then I need to pay closer attention to the gift that is being given to me. It's only as I orient my life around the scope and scale of the gift that has been given to me that I will be transformed from the inside and just become a gentler, kinder, more forgiving person in my everyday life. So as I've spent time kind of like praying this passage and sitting with this passage, I've considered, well, how, okay, so how, like this week, I'm, I've been a little bit more tuned in to um, how unforgiving I am in really simple little things. And so I've processed like, okay, what, how do I pray this? What's going on inside of me? How do I make this transition? How do I be gentle in this moment? And I don't think the key to appreciating the scale of the gift or the amount that's been forgiving is to practice self-loathing. Like, I don't think I need to spend time like, okay, I need to understand how great this debt that's been forgiven. I need to understand how great this gift. And so I need to like think of myself lower like, I'm so bad. I'm so lucky God puts up with me. Be grateful. Be grateful. Like, that's 
not the way forward. And some of you I see smirking and you may think that why would you think that way? But that's kind of a popular way to do spirituality. There's this sort of browbeating that can happen, like to just tell people how bad they are and then tell them that God loves you anyways, that to try and like get you to feel the gap there of grace. Can you believe God would love someone as worthless as you? That, that's like, that's, I, get, I don't think that's the way to go. And I don't think that's what Jesus is going for. Rather, I think he's, again, he's, this whole spiritual life is somewhat mysterious. And so he's telling a parable because he's trying to talk about something mysterious that's happening inside of us. And I think essentially what he is getting at is the way that God's presence in our lives always feels like a gift. It always feels like a grace. Like if you've had an experience where you've had some awareness of God's love for you, your first thought is never, I deserve this. Your first thought is always, thank you. What? I experience this sometimes in prayer. Again, I want to emphasize sometimes because sometimes prayer is very boring and dry. But sometimes there is an awareness that God is near. And when this happens, it always feels like mercy. This is why one of the most popular prayers is, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Just this awareness that being near God is mercy. It's just mercy. God's presence always feels like gift. Always feels like grace. This happens to me sometimes in prayer. Maybe you've experienced that you've been reading a Bible passage and something just stirs in you a little bit, like a tuning fork when you're tuning a piano, you hit it and the, the notes resonate. Just something resonates inside of you and it feels beautiful and something maybe has moved in you a little bit. Or, or maybe you're singing a worship song, the words get to you, maybe you even start weeping. This is us connecting with love, connecting with God's love for us. And something stirs and moves. When this happens, this always feels like a tremendous gift. Maybe you went out for an early morning walk and you saw the sun rising in just the right way and it like stopped you in your tracks. You took your breath away. Just in that moment, it just felt like grace. I think this is what Jesus means by this debt being forgiven, is he's trying to call our attention to that God's presence in our life feels like a tremendous grace. These moments of awareness of God's love. When this happens, it always feels like mercy, always feels like grace. And the point that Jesus is making is you are unforgiving. I am unforgiving to others because we're not noticing all the grace that God is giving to us. There's this bounty of grace coming to us. God's pouring out the riches of his love. And we're being petty and mean and bitter and resentful. Because we're not slowing down to delight in this love and notice this grace that's coming to us. Now as I pay attention to this, I'm aware, so like over the last few days, as I found myself, okay, I'm feeling unforgiving in this moment. I'm, I'm getting some bitterness and resentment, and I, I'm playing through this, I'm not being treated fairly in this situation moment. So what I've been doing, 
is I've just been calling to mind these memories of receiving God's grace. So I can't always just like flip a switch and feel God's love and presence in my life, but I can recall a memory. I can recall a memory of prayer. I can, re- I can kind of call my attention to that place within me where I feel like God is or dwells within me where I connect with him. I can call that to mind in that moment sit and remember God's love and what God's love feels like. In a way, I think if I were to use the language of the parable, I can kind of like go back to that moment when I'm standing before the Lord and before the King, and there's this huge debt that's being forgiven to me or this huge gift or grace that's being given to me. I can recall that moment. I can replay that memory. And as I'm doing that, something just shifts inside of me. When I call to mind that encounter with God's grace, I experience it, put myself back in the room with the king giving me this gift, my circumstances changes, and I just feel a little bit freer not to be bitter, not to hold on to a person, just freer to forgive. Earlier this week uh, in the Red Book, if you were kind of on the right week in week 15 this past week, week 16 for the upcoming week, but this past week, week 15, there was a reading that gave an illustration that I thought kind of illustrated a little bit of what this uh, feels like. So I'm going to read that. Hopefully this is helpful. As I've said before, there are only two ways of losing our sense of independence, of subservience to the opinion of others, pride or humility. So you can either like think yourself really great, and that's why you don't care what other people think, or humility. There is that form of humility which consists in accepting neither people's censure nor their praise, but in remaining simply before the judgment of God in one's own conscience as in the story of a brother who wanted to know how he should respond to praise and to criticism. Go to the graveyard, said his spiritual father, and abuse the dead. He did so, and when he came back, his father asked him what the dead had done. Nothing, said the young monk. They remained silent. Go back and praise them, said the elder. And when his disciple had reported that the cemetery stayed as silent as before, he said, do the same as the dead. Human judgment no longer affects them, for they, always stand, for they stand always in the sight of God. And I think because I was pre- preparing for this sermon, this, this quote really resonated with me. Talking about criticism and praise, but it equally applies to forgiveness. Because of God's grace, I have this inner room where I stand always before God. This means I let go of that need to manage that self. So if someone injures the self, because I've let go of that and I'm dwelling in the presence of the king, this self has died in the language of like the death of the false self in the language of here, dead, it's in a graveyard. This, This person may owe myself a debt, but there's a part of me that's just let go of the self, no longer attached to the self made self. My real life is found in the presence of the king. This is the, the center of my life, is, is being in the presence of the king, recognizing I've received this grace, and that then I continue to receive grace kind of in the little things I go through in my life. And then if somebody wounds myself, there's just like a different orientation where I'm staying before God and receiving grace from God. And the more that I learn to dwell in this place, live from this center, and the more gentle and forgiving I become kind of in my everyday lives. And I'm like aware, like I, even as I was preparing this, I was unsure if I like 
include that last little part about the graveyard and like kind of how that shift to that inner life. But this is, the, this, is what it, this is how I experience it. And the reason why I was hesitant because it sounds sort of like esoteric or super spiritual, but I, I don't think it is. I think just us, all of us kind of in our normal process of our Christian journey where we're learning to like find our identity in God's love for us, if we consistently do that over years and years and years, and we just become gentler people. We become more forgiving people. And, remind, and so I want a story of that. A few years ago, you guys know that my, if you've been around for a few years, you know that my father got a flesh-eating bacteria in his skin. And, um, and the first thing they did, they had to carve out all the skin around where the bacteria was. And so it ended up being up to about here and then down to his toes. They just kind of filleted the skin right off his leg. So he had this huge open wound. And so the strategy was then to cut out a chunk of skin from his thigh and put it on that part of his foot and leg. And because um, you get a lot less blood flow down the foot. So the idea was that this would heal naturally quickly because it's higher up, closer to the heart, and that um, having the skin graft down there would help it. Well, what ended up happening was he went into surgery to have the skin graft done, and the person who had prepped the machine had put the blade in backwards. And so when it went into his thigh to cut the skin off, it went down like twice as deep. And um, because of that, it, it meant that his, the healing process was going to be much, much longer. He's going to have this huge open wound here and this wound on his foot. Then, I mean, once they started going, it was too late. They couldn't go back, so they had to keep going. Then they had to run the skin graft through this machine that perforates the skin, which helps it, uh, the foot receive it. And as it was running through, that machine broke and tore the skin graft in half. So needless to say, it was a disaster. And um, I was there when uh, they put it on. They still put it on. And then we went down a couple years ago, two, three years ago, when uh, he was going for the first fall, a week after the skin graft went on. And, we were just, and he discovered that the skin graft didn't take, so they had to pull it off his foot. And so then the whole thing was for nothing. And my mom, I remember her saying when she saw the doctor, the first thing the doctor said to her was, you're probably going to sue, aren't you? <laughs> and she said, no, we don't sue. We're not going to sue. And the doctor just, and so I think he was kind of taken aback by that. And then he felt freer to just, he just apologized. He told her everything that happened. And at some point in time, they had a conversation like, don't, when you apologize, aren't you admitting guilt? And he's like, well, we, we found that a lot of times that's all people really want is they don't like necessarily need to sue. They just need a doctor to like apologize to them and admit that they did something wrong. When you don't admit, then that actually gets them to sue more because they're more angry. And so anyway, so this guy, he apologized like crazy, offered all future service free so he could come as many visits to him. They'd never charge him. He said that the, a, a day later, the hospital called him and said, are they going to sue? And he said, no, they're not going to sue. But the least you can do is not charge them for the hospital stay. And my mom said they, they did charge them anyways and never apologized. But my parents, they just, I don't know, like they were sad. Like my dad was so discouraged. I remember being, he was so discouraged when they were, they were pulling the skin graft off and it didn't take. But they never felt like they needed to punish anybody. 
They never felt like, you've wronged me, you haven't respected me, I have to get back. They just never felt that need. And as I thought about that, just this is what happens when you spend decades worshiping a God who is so gracious to us, who is so gentle to us, who when we make mistakes and we go to God and say, have mercy on me, he says, oh, yes. All the mercy that you need, all the love that you need, when we experience God being this way to us, it sets us free. We just don't have to punish people when they wrong us. We're that much freer to forgive. So how are you doing? Not on a scale of being a forgiving person. Towards those closest to you, your spouse, your children, your parents, your co-workers. If you're like me and you're aware that you have room to grow, the solution is not to grit your teeth and will, will yourself to be more forgiving. The solution is to notice the grace you have been given already. Notice how great the debt is that's been forgiven. The God of the universe has given himself for you and dwells in you by the Holy Spirit. And you can commune with this God. You can receive love from this God. You can live your day in the presence of this God. This is tremendous grace. One of the ways that you can signal that, you know, kind of wherever you are and, and knowing and being aware of this, and I just want to also make clear that the feeling part isn't always there. Like sometimes you don't feel God's love. That's where the faith comes in. We believe and trust in it. And if you would like to, to say, hey, I want to make this transition from being this petty, vindictive type person to being a person that is gentle and forgiving towards others, recognizing that you need to experience grace, experience the forgiveness of debt. And this is what communion is about. This is what the table is about. So come to this. And maybe it doesn't feel overwhelming to you, but it's about the will. It's a choice. It's an intention of the heart. You're choosing to come and partake in God's mercy.